This is Age Well with Dr. Sophie Schotter. I'm your host, Fiona Mattesini, and this episode is covering all things gut health as it relates not just to skin, but to general health. So we call them hallmarks of ageing, the cellular hallmarks of ageing, of which there are now 12 which have been identified. And this biosis is one of those 12. Plus, Dr. Sophie will give us the lowdown on something not very often talked about, and that's vaginal health. The pH of our vagina should be... Of course, we'll cover probiotics. So daily use and maintenance, most data back guidelines recommend somewhere between... Including the latest trend, have you heard of spore-based probiotics? The good thing about spore-based probiotics is that they... All will be debunked, demystified and, of course, explained. As always, thank you for listening. And if you want to give us a nice little Christmas present, we would love it if you hit that follow button on Apple or Spotify so we can continue to grow and to build Dr. Sophie's community. Whatever you're doing across the holiday season, Sophie and I both hope you have the chance to thoroughly de-stress, rest and relax. Right. This, Sophie, is still such a hot topic. And I think a lot of people listening will already be gut health nerds like like we are. So (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to spend too much time repeating the kind of information that's already out there because it's been quite well documented. I think that the gut connection to overall health, including mental health, has been quite well socialized. A lot of people seem less aware, though, of the connection between good gut health and skin. So what do we know about this link so far? There is a definite gut-skin axis. So just as we have a gut microbiome, we also have a skin microbiome, and the two are interrelated. But if you have gut microbiome issues, you are going to be more prone to inflammatory skin conditions like Mm -hmm. acne, rosacea, eczema, psoriasis. So these are skin conditions that often have a more deeply rooted cause within the body and within your overall systemic health. Mm -hmm. So for anyone who suffers with a skin condition, your gut health is something you should be thinking about. Mm -hmm. When we see patients with these inflammatory skin conditions in clinic, we do have conversations about what their diet's like. Because for example, having a low sugar diet, so a low GI diet can be really beneficial, particularly in acne, because sugar feeds your cortisol levels. So you can get more breakouts. And dairy is another big one where there is some evidence that it may be driving acne in some people. So I will certainly suggest that people test out whether making dietary modifications impacts on how their skin behaves. Mm. Even down to things like sleep and stress, all of these things impact on our gut health and on all of these different skin conditions. Mm. Yeah, I was reading that the release of stress hormones can impact the production of oil in the skin sebaceous glands. So as you say, it's all... Very much, yeah. We're linked to all of this data and research because it is there and we're learning more and more. One thing I learned, which I hadn't realised, is that two-thirds of our immune system lives in our gut. It's thought to be between 60 and 80%. And I also learned this recently, and I think a lot of us don't realise that all of this good bacteria that we're now thinking about a lot lives on us as well as inside us. So it's this ecosystem of bacteria that's really, really running the show. If we stay in the lane of aesthetics for a moment, how should we therefore approach cleansing and exfoliation? It's a really good question because 
so many people think that with cleansing and with active ingredients, more is more. But you can cause quite significant microbiome disruption to your skin microbiome if you're overdoing it. Because we want to keep this healthy layer of bacteria thriving. And if you alter the pH of your skin too much by using too many aggressive acids, then absolutely that could have a detrimental effect on your microbiome. So, of course, cleansing is important. And of course, exfoliation is important but not overdoing it. So when I hear about this huge trend for double cleansing, sometimes it's important to double cleanse when you have a lot of makeup on or you've Mm. been in a really polluted environment, but it isn't necessary every single day. Mm. So by doing so, I do think people are harming their skin barrier. Yeah. My older daughter is on Accutane for the second time and she uh, refuses to countenance any real lifestyle changes. She's 20. I wondered what impact this might be having on her gut health. Um, Does Accutane kill gut bacteria? So Accutane itself shouldn't have an impact on your gut bacteria itself. It's a high dose of vitamin A. But other acne treatments systemically often involve antibiotics. And of course, that does impact the microbiome. So Mm. when you take, and I unfortunately know of people who've been kept on these antibiotics for years and years and years and years, Mm. and you are essentially nuking all of your body's microbiome when you're taking these. Mm. So it is something to think about that when you're taking a, a drug systemically, it can have issues. So even though there haven't been kind of specific tests about Accutane in humans, it has been shown in mice to not cause an issue with the gut microbiome. There's no real reason that it should. Yeah, that's quite reassuring. I think it's also down to the fact that this is a generalisation, maybe it's my teenagers, but people often want fast fixes. And of course, Accutane and antibiotics will do that as opposed to if you make lifestyle changes, it's a longer term commitment It's a really tricky line to walk because obviously acne has a huge impact on mental health and so can acne scarring. So I also believe in teenagers that sometimes dealing with it relatively aggressively in the right people Mm. can have a really positive impact overall. But if you're not also fixing the underlying cause at the same time, then you're going to keep rebounding. And like your daughter, going on Accutane for a second time, and there are some people who've had it even more times than that. Mm. I am a big believer that we should be avoiding antibiotics unless absolutely needed, especially in this day and age of understanding our microbiomes better, but also understanding the importance of not developing antibiotic resistance within the community more than we already have. And the thought of a biotic resistance apocalypse is pretty real and Mm. scary. Mm. So where there are other options available, I do think we should be exploring those. In terms of if we broaden out the conversation and have a wider conversation around longevity, how much of the ageing process is determined by our microbiome? So it's really hard to quantify exactly, but the gut microbiome is important for how we age. It's one of the pillars of cellular ageing, should we say. Mm. So I wouldn't say it's more important than others, but it is important. So as we get older, our intestinal microbiome does change 
and it can signal to our peripheral and central nervous systems and therefore does have an impact on the overall maintenance of health. So looking after our microbiome is utterly crucial, but does it play into it more than any of the other particular markers? Or So we call them hallmarks of ageing, the cellular hallmarks of ageing, of which there are now 12 which have been identified. Mm. And this biosis is one of those 12. So it is an important pillar to be thinking about, but it's not the only one. Right, probiotics. Oh my goodness me, so much choice out there. What should we be looking for? So probiotics are essentially good bacteria, but what we've got to remember is that it's really hard to replace bacteria that have been lost. So these good bacteria that we're taking aren't necessarily there to take up residence in your gut. It's about minimising the risk of bad bacteria taking hold. I'm actually in the process of changing my usual probiotic based on the latest data that I've been reading. So for daily use and maintenance, most databank guidelines recommend somewhere between 10 and 20 billion CFUs. That's colony forming units. So these are bacteria strains. They're living bacteria which are essential. And you want them to be able to actually reach your gut and not get killed off by any of the stomach acids as you digest them. If you're dealing with any specific gut issues like candida or IBS, or if you're going to be on a course of antibiotics, then you could take much higher doses under the guidance of your doctor. The two main strains of probiotic that we look for are lactobacillus and bifidobacterium. And within these two kind of main families, there's lots of different strains. As a little side note, if the CFU number in your supplement is guaranteed at the time of manufacturing, but not at the time of expiration, then you might be taking less powerful probiotics than you think they are because their potency does fade over time. I remember when products like Actimel came onto the market and it was a great marketing campaign and really raised the awareness of gut health. But these have been shown to really have very minimal impact whatsoever, if any. It's also good practice to look out for supplement brands that have third-party testing. So in other words, is there independent research on the product and its strains to back up its efficacy? There's also some thinking around packaging, which I think is important to note, because if the probiotics are individually packaged, it protects the live cultures, because if they just come in a bottle, then they could be losing their potency from air exposure. And I will say that the brands that I have used over time have all come in individual little foil pockets. There's a whole load of great brands emerging, and one recommendation I do really rate is Simproof. It's a liquid probiotic you can take in the morning, a capful first thing on an empty stomach, and it has 70 billion CFUs in it, which is a really great dose. Okay, that's great. What are your thoughts on this trend for spore-based and or soil-based probiotics, which contain bacteria from the earth? And, and what's the deal with all that? So this is to do with the fact that if you think about our modern lifestyles. We're very clean compared to how we ever were. So many parents don't really let their children even get dirty anymore. And when we buy our fruit and veg, it's cleaned to within an inch of its life. When's the Mm. last time you found soil on a vegetable that you Mm. cooked at home? I can't Mm. remember. I do remember it from my childhood. I don't remember it more recently at all. Mm. And so we are exposed to a lot less 
microorganisms from natural sources than we maybe used to be as a species. So the good thing about spore-based probiotics is that they are quite resistant to stomach acid Mm -hmm. and then enter your gut in a more protected, adornment state. Mm -hmm. But there are things to remember, whether or not these sorts of things should be being taken if you're at risk, if you're pregnant, if you're immunocompromised. I definitely wouldn't. And we have to realise that there isn't the data for them yet that there is for many established probiotics. It's really good to look for probiotics that have established clinical data, preferably from third parties, because that shows it's independent. Mm -hmm. And I haven't seen that for these spore-based or soil-based products yet. Slight gear change. Can we talk about vaginal health? I, like so many women, I hate this trend towards vaginal washes and wipes. I want to shake so many younger women out there and go, no, please don't do it. I know many women feel the same. Unless I'm missing something, they're not meant to be good for vaginas. So can we talk a little bit about that ecosystem, which I think is quite unique, right? Absolutely. And again, they are all related. So for example, if you've got candida Mm -hmm. living in your gut, it's likely you're also going to get candida vaginally. So none of these parts of our body exist in isolation of the others. So our vagina has its own healthy, optimal. It's mainly inhabited by a type of lactobacillus called lactobacillus crispatus. Mm -hmm. And the pH of our vagina should be between about 3.8 and Mm 4.5. Now, when you're using soap-based products, they're very often alkali and can disrupt the vaginal pH quite significantly, which means that you can get things like thrush or BV, which is bacterial vaginosis, Mm. and those lactobacilli help to maintain that pH. Mm. There's also a particular type of yeast, which is called Saccharomyces boulardii, which can again help to minimise your risk of candida. So it can be quite good for some people as a supplement. Some people seem to do really well with it, others don't. But the thing to remember is this is an area of our body that if we want to keep it healthy, we also need to nurture. And if you're using all of these beyond staying clean, Mm. this isn't something that you should be, in the same way as you shouldn't be over-cleansing your skin, you shouldn't be over-cleansing your vagina. Mm, Yeah, well said. Can you explain the difference between prebiotics and probiotics? Good question. And there's a lot of people who are taking a probiotic and not thinking about prebiotics. So probiotics are the living organisms, the bacteria or the yeasts, whereas prebiotics are what feeds them. We're talking about things like high fibre foods. I think onion and garlic are really good ones. Mm. There's, if you want to take it as a supplement, something called inulin, which is a soluble fibre, is an excellent prebiotic. So it's about making sure that you're giving these bacteria the food that they need to survive. Right. Okay. And it's not necessarily what you need as food. Right. Okay. Makes sense. How do you feel about digestive enzymes, which I'm reading, uh, seeing a lot on my Insta as well? Yeah, I think they can be good for some people. There are some people who have various dietary insufficiencies. So, for example, digestive enzymes have been used for a really long time by people who've had pancreatic issues, for example. Mm -hmm. So you can take ones that break down 
lactose in dairy or ones that break down carbohydrates, an enzyme called amylase, or ones that break down fats. So that's an enzyme called lipase. Mm -hmm. And so if someone struggles to digest a particular type of food efficiently, then taking digestive enzymes can be helpful. Not everyone needs them, but if we think about the fact that breaking down of food, when we're talking about gut conditions, for example, SIBO, which is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, Mm -hmm. we want to make sure that as much as possible, that food stuff is broken down properly before it reaches that part of our gut so that then those bacteria have less to feed them. Would that be good for, I know a few people, and in fact, I'm a little bit this way, who can eat bread in places like France and Italy, but they they say, look, English, British bread, which I'm guessing is down to the wheat, I just can't cope with. Do you think that would help? Potentially, for sure, yeah. Right. And it's things like some people say, if you're going to have bread sourdoughs, a better version to take than other breads. Yeah. And maybe more digestible. Yeah, I find that actually. And what about, do you have any tips for people on antibiotics? Can they take probiotics, for example, or will will one cancel the other one out? I would absolutely recommend that if you're on antibiotics, you take a high dose of probiotics, but you shouldn't take them at the same time. Take them at least two to three hours apart, because what you don't want to do is take your probiotic and then the antibiotic kill the bacteria in the probiotic. What would be the point? Yeah, 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 exactly. And have you ever done any kind of gut testing? So like a stool test or the, is it the SIBO test? I personally haven't. I think increasingly we're going to head into a realm where stool testing is informative of our overall health, like the Zoe, for example, which is Mm. something I keep meaning to order and do. (laughs) Me too. But I'm... For me, it's around my travel and so on. It can be a little bit difficult. But... And the SIBO test is good for people who've got symptoms of SIBO. And it's usually a breath test. So these sorts of things are available. Conventionally, they've been used for if you have problems. I think more and more we'll see them being used as a tool for health management. I also see a really good acupuncturist. I'm going to mention him actually, John in Sidmouth down in Devon. He's amazing. And I find that actually he's John Chadwick. I'm going to mention him by name. Uh, he's very, very good. And um, acupuncture helps if I'm feeling a little bit like, oh, my gut's not quite right. That can help me as well. Yeah. So besides diet, which has been well documented, what else can help our guts and therefore help our skin if we bring it back to skin? A few things to think about fasting. When you intermittent fast... Our body tells our cells that they've got less energy to work with and so that they need to recycle more efficiently. Mm -hmm. And that can help to promote cellular processes like autophagy and mitophagy, which is basically where consider them kind of cellular cleaning up processes. Mm -hmm. And it can help clear out those dysfunctional cells or those dysfunctional mitochondria, which can cause inflammation in the body and in the skin. Mm-hmm. And again, autophagy is one of those cellular hallmarks of aging that I was talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's a really good process to try and activate. Mm-hmm. And then there's also thinking about stress here. Mm-hmm. And our vagus nerve is a huge nerve, which runs through our digestive system runs basically from our head downwards through the center of our body and people with gastro problems like reflux or IBS or colitis far more often have issues with their vagus nerve Mm -hmm. so clean eating 
stress-reducing things like deep breathing exercises can help to support the vagal function. Mm-hmm. Devices like the Sensate can help to improve vagal nerve tone as well. Mm-hmm. And studies have also shown that cold water or cold temperatures help to activate that pathway as well. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of different things you can do to help improve that vagal nerve tone. There's also a little technique which involves massaging behind the ear or not immediately behind the ear and I'll see if I can find a link to YouTube to show it so that we can share that Mm. and that's something you can do yourself in the morning to help improve the health of your vagus nerve. Mm. A lot of things come down to slowing down and just removing that stress in, in all things in life. Exactly. Well, again, Sophie, thank you for unpacking such a big area of discussion and adding a new lens and uh, a bit of clarity. Thank you. Thanks, V. And that ends our podcast. If you want to explore more of what we talked about, simply head to the show notes. We've done all of the research and noting down of names, ideas, any studies we mentioned so you don't have to go digging. To be ahead of the latest episode, press follow on Apple Podcasts. That's the little cross on the top right. Or simply hit follow on Spotify or whichever podcast app you use. Also, do follow Sophie on Instagram and TikTok. There's loads of great content and little explainers on there. Search for Dr. Sophie Schotter. Finally, if you're close to London or Kent, you can book a consultation with Sophie and find out more about who she is and the range of treatments and services she offers via drsophieschotter.com. And by the way, there's some great blog content on the website too. My name's Fiona Mattacini. On behalf of myself and Sophie, please do take a moment to rate and review the show. It all helps. And of course, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.